0: Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Leisure in the Past, and Today. The date, May 2023, and my name is Belle Avis. Guard well your spare moments. They are like uncut diamonds. Discard them, and their value will never be known. Improve them, and they will become the brightest gems in a useful life. Ralph Waldo Emerson Work is a blessing. God has so arranged the world that work is necessary, and he gives us hand and strength to do it. The enjoyment of leisure would be nothing if we only had leisure. It is the joy of work well done that enables us to enjoy rest, just as it is the experiences of hunger and thirst that make food and drink such pleasures. Elizabeth Eliot, Discipline the glad surrender. Organizing your leisure effectively is the highest level of civilization. Bertrand Russell. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle lips are his mouthpiece. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 27. A school of thought celebrates the life of a medieval peasant, even comparing feudal life favorably, favorably, against that of modern-day workers. Yes, folks, the left comes up with some fun stuff, but their latest, we actually have it worse than the feudal worker. From The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure, by Juliet B. Shore, we have this. One of capitalism's most durable myths is that it has reduced human toil. This myth is typically defended by a comparison of the modern 40-hour work week with its 70- or 80-hour counterpart in the 19th century, Shore notes. During slack periods, which accounted for a large part of the year, adherence to regular working hours was not usual. According to Oxford professor James E. Thorold Rogers, the medieval workday was not even more than eight hours. The worker participating in an eight-hour movements of the late 19th century was simply striving to recover what his ancestor worked by four or five centuries ago. So right off the bat, it's kind of interesting that Shore would cite somebody who in turn is citing the 19th century, the 1800s, as opposed to a comparison of today. But there you have it. They even cite a 16th century bishop who wrote a schedule that Tolkien's break-addicted hobbits might covet. At noon he must have his sleeping time, then his beaver in the afternoon, which meant break, which spendeth a great part of the day. And when his hour cometh at night, at the first stroke of the clock, he casteth down his tools, leaveth his work. In what need or case soever the work standeth. James Pilkington, Bishop of Durham, circa 1570. And once again, this citation of medieval being better, Note a couple of things right off the bat. This is a bishop of Durham, and the church was a big part of the work-life balance, if you will, of that era. I would strongly doubt that maybe the Lord working the farm would be uh, as understanding, assuming that the peasant leaveth his work, and in what case soever the work would standeth, if the Lord did not have his harvest, his food, or his work completed, I'm not sure it would have been quite so sanguine as this bishop would have us believe. According to Shore, that was Juliet Shore again, medieval peasants, depending on time and place, also enjoyed mid-morning and mid-afternoon refreshment breaks. These rest periods were the traditional rites of laborers, which they enjoyed even during peak harvest times. Tim Morstall of the Adam Smith Institute is having none of it. One of the things that irks my collar, yanks my goat if you like, is this idea that the medieval peasant led a life of incredible leisure, had to work vastly less than we poor saps ground down under capitalism have to. It's entirely nonsense, of course. Economist Juliet Shore found that during periods of exceptionally high wages, such as in 14th century England, peasants might put in no more than She calculates 150 days a year. Sure, and others, for there are others who make the same claim, has looked at the labor service expected of the villein and then claimed that this was the amount of work they had to do, the villein being the work or the contribution necessary to the Lord. This is nonsense. This work on the Lord's domain was the rent payable for the peasants' own land to farm but did not count the peasant farming that land. Something which instead added to his workload, of course, was that farming of his own land after he would farm the lords. Now, take a simple look around whatever room or location you are listening to this podcast. I will, for, well, we'll just say TMI reasons, assume that you are clothed. You probably did not sew and mend your clothes on your own, Uh, A grocery store or restaurant supplied your most recent meal. You did not seed, grow, harvest, and prepare the food yourself. The desktop upon which your PC sits was manufactured elsewhere. You did not have to go and chop the wood, shape the wood, put it together, or hand over a good part of your crop, extra crop necessary, to purchase the desk from an artisan who did. Your heat or air conditioning magically is just there. You did not need to go and collect the wood and bring it into your home. More backbreaking hours. And water? Turn on the tap. Collecting water from the well or the stream to make ale or wine, which was largely the beverage of your medieval peasant, needed to be carried to your home. Not half the year, but every single day. You have your own animals if you want milk, eggs, or meat. That means every day, I'm not talking about taking spot or wrecks for a walk, but hours each day to their care. The reality was a little more like this. During the Middle Ages, the population of Europe grew from well around 35 to 80 million between 1000 and 1347. Probably due to improved agricultural techniques and a more mild climate. Now, of course, the date 3047 was chosen intentionally, as that was the beginning of the Black Death, in which nearly a quarter to a third of Western Europe was wiped out. So the modern-day equivalent the U.S. would be around 80 to 100 million deaths. And we panicked over COVID. 90% of the European population remained rural peasants gathered into small communities of manors or villages. Towns grew up around castles and were often fortified by walls in response to disorder and raids. Yeah, that that medieval peasant, he had a lot of free time, I'm certain, because as these raids would take place, maybe it was from another noble's army, maybe it was Vikings, it could have been any of these things, would immediately have to run to the castle and live in the stockade. There's all that leisure time while your fields, harvest, and animals are being taken during said raid. And on the subject of women, well, they were subordinate to men in both the peasant and noble classes, and were expected to ensure the smooth running of the household. This is a point our progressive historians always seem to omit. Not that leftist feminists will admit this, but capitalism, by moving society beyond an agricultural-centric world, enabled a greater parity between sexes and subsequently opportunities for women not seen any point prior. Capitalism is simply the best thing to happen to women. And children? Well, that is if they lived. In medieval times, children had a 50% survival rate beyond age 1 and began to contribute to family life around age 12. Yeah, all that leisure. And this was not just Western Europe. Here is a description of life of a Han dynasty, which was roughly 220 BCE to roughly 200 CE peasant. Some peasants were better off than others. Some could afford oxen to pull their carts and simple wells to help draw water to irrigate their fields. Others were less fortunate. They worked with wooden hand tools and hauled water in heavy buckets across their shoulders. Peasant men did most of the physical labor around the farm. The women had two primary responsibilities, taking care of the household and weaving and sewing, providing clothing for the family and to add to the family income. Now, what were these clothes? Most peasants in Han China dressed in plain rough clothes. Their shirts and pants were made of a scratchy cloth. Their sandals were made of straw. And keep in mind, the women had to produce all those in-house, more leisure. Oh, and those oxen, remember the wealthy people had the oxen? Oxen had to be taken care of. Oxen had to have food and water of their own. And that food and water didn't just magically appear. In winter, their Chinese Han peasant, they wore petted clothing to keep warm. They'd simple meals, steam much of their food in small stoves, which again, you need fuel for those stoves to steam the food. Meals consisted of steamed dumplings, balls of cooked dough stuffed with meat or rice, small fish and tiny meat portions. In addition, peasants ate wheat or a grain called millet. And many families grew ginger, garlic and onions in their gardens. Remember, they also have their own farms. These crops could be added to their meals for flavor or sold at the market to bring in some precious extra money. Now, most of these peasants had pretty hard lives. They worked nearly every day of the year, regardless of what Shore says. That just wasn't true. They were often exposed to harsh weather, including dust and windstorms, the burning sun, heavy rains, and bitter cold. Floods and severe dry weather or drought could quickly destroy their livelihood. Peasants whose lands was destroyed or severely damaged might find themselves with no money to buy seed for the following years, planting of crops. They might have to sell all of their tools or oxen to survive a harsh winter. After the government collected taxes from the peasants, many found themselves with little left to live on. So we are looking at comparisons of western European medieval peasants and ancient Chinese medieval peasants to today. That's not what a lot of progressive historians, though, would like to do. Instead, this concept of leisure time, this concept that somehow the medieval peasant had more leisure time than today, is to compare rather to a manufacturing-type job, the kind of job that usually requires eight-hour shifts, sometimes even longer, even with breaks and lunch. And obviously there isn't a ton of breaks built in, at least there wasn't, Again, note that comparison to the 1800s, because 21st century manufacturing jobs aren't quite like that. But let's also consider this. The concept of an American tethered to some assembly line is a dated concept as only 11% of total jobs in the U.S. are now manufacturing. Most of what used to be termed white-collar, and any sentient person working in an office knows that breaks are not only common but frequent amongst white-collar workers is the typical style of an American worker today. Here's the reality about leisure within the United States today. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, men spent 5.6 hours per day in leisure and sports activities and women 4.9 hours in 2021. So for the men of this nation, that would translate clearly time 7 into 40 hours. Every week of leisure time. And so I'm now going to pivot to a human interest story, if you will, from the United States. In a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal, a sports writer, or really a guy who writes human interest pieces that happen to be about sports, named Jason Gay states, around the country, youth and school programs continue to lose umpires, referees, and officials at worrisome rates. The pandemic was a factor, with sports shut down or limited. Some former officials found new work. But the number one reason for leaving remains the same. Ugly, antisocial behavior by spectators, by parents in particular. Across youth sports, it isn't hard to find examples of parents, spectators, coaches, and other adults confronting and threatening officials during and after games. Said one organizer of these games, every week we get a report of some type of physical assault against a sports official. It's mind-boggling. I'll say it for you, this is a societal embarrassment, another pathetic symptom of our national tantrum culture. And of that opinion, I couldn't agree more. There is definitely something to that, as uh, Gay would put it, tantrum culture. I want it. And I want it now. I want my kid to win. I want the ump to always side with them and get everything absolutely correct. And if not, well, you're going to hear about it as if we are a nation of Veruca salts from the wonderful Charlie and Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. And I would say the one that is not being rewritten in woke prose. Gay goes on to write about other factors, including the money for travel leagues and the ability to capture plays on camera. But I would posit another. I played U-sports back in the pre-Cambrian period, having to fight Velociraptors for the fields. Okay, I'm not that old. It was just saber-toothed tigers, you know, like Diego from the Ice Age series. But one of the big deals for us kids was when the parents would be able to come and see our games. Back in the day, this was actually not as common as it is today. We were not chauffeured in the back of enormous black-tinted SUVs fit for a head of state as kids are today. Instead, our transport consisted mainly of two-wheeled, human-powered machines. And since our games were after school typically, usually at the 4 o'clock hour, there were parents, but they were few. I noted that for my kids' soccer games, also right after school, there was almost always a parent for each kid, and often as not both, attending not a few games, but all of them. Now, of course, youth sports combines, well, two interesting aspects of American culture. One is, is that, as Americans, we spend, ready for this number, $75 billion on sports entertainment. So we are a sports craze, people. And not just one sport like so much of the world in which maybe cricket is number one or soccer is number one. No, we spend it across everything. Football, hockey, basketball, you name it. And even baseball. Well, maybe not the most interesting of the sports leagues. But nevertheless, we spend a lot of time and a lot of money on sports. And then I would remind you, that the word fan derives from fanatic. And that's kind of how we are about sports. We're fanatics. And now we combine this with the, well, frankly, the natural sort of irrationality that comes with being a parent. We sometimes see our children more as we would want them to be. Or worse, we start to project our identities into them. So with kids' leagues, we are essentially projecting our fanaticism of sports and combine that with well frankly the sometimes irrationality of parenthood into one thing and then even layering over at the spend with some of these travel leagues what could possibly go wrong but that isn't really even my point my point is is that the parents are there it's still a little strange to watch a, I don't know, a 13-year-old soccer game and look and see 40 or 50 parents standing on the sidelines with that devil's brew of fanaticism and irrationality coming to the fore. But again, my larger point is that the parents are able to be there. And I'm not talking about Saturday or Sunday. I'm talking about after school. I'm talking like three thirty, four 4 o'clock. At every single game. Now, I would couple this thought with the usual nonsense emanating from the mind of Bernie Sanders, a man who honeymooned in the Soviet Union and clearly has never heard of Alexander Ian's Gulag archipelago, much less Mao's great leap forward. According to Julian Kaplan and Ayalet Sheffy of The Business Insider, Bernie Sanders thinks you should work fewer days. The progressive from Vermont chimed in on the four-day workweek debate on Twitter, writing, with exploding technology and increased worker productivity, it's time to move towards a four-day work week with no loss of pay. Workers must benefit from technology, not just corporate CEOs. I always love that. Bernie can't get through a single sentence or even a statement of mind without ripping on corporate CEOs. The man's like an automaton, just keep winding him up in the same thing, millionaires and billionaires and bad corporate chieftains, it's all the same but I digress. Back to Sanders. This isn't the first time a four-day work week has caught the attention of lawmakers. The Congressional Progressive Caucus previously endorsed the 32-Hour Workweek Act, with Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal saying in a statement at the time that it's past time that we put peoples and communities over corporations and their profits. Finally, prioritizing the health, well-being, and basic human dignity of the working class rather than their employer's bottom line. You bet, Jayapal, because if anything is just, just absolutely subjected to the indignities of being a human, it's having to go to work. Oh my God, it's awful. This cited a study in Britain where 3,000 workers said glorious things about the plan. Gee, shocking they would. And employers claimed they made more money which I find a little suspect. And one other thing, too, to keep in mind, the kind of thing which uh, Sanders and Jayapal are not talking about, that those corporate earnings, that bottom line that is being ripped apart by the progressives is governmental revenue, a huge percentage of it. Without those monies, they can't do this or that or, well, figuring out new ways to waste our money. So what they'll do is, is they'll just raise taxes to compensate for it, people. And as far as that happiness of it, well, I guess it'd be true for now. My post-pandemic association initially tried a three-day-in-office, two-out policy. Too much griping. So we moved to a two-day-in, three-at-home model, and everyone is happy. Things are relative. A worker going from 40 hours to 32 will revel in the time. Again, for now. But eventually, when this becomes the modus operandi, they will want 30. And keep in mind that there's certain jobs, I don't know, air traffic controllers, police, doctors, nurses, who can't operate like that. Somebody has to be on the job. And as Warstall notes, as to why this is all being trotted out, as for the modern American worker, after a year on the job, she gets an average of eight vacation days annually. The U.S. is the only leading nation without legislation on how much paid vacation time an employee must get. There is thus a move to make such a law. Thus, these rather tired misunderstandings of medieval life comparisons are being trotted out to aid in making that case. Yes, folks, that is what all of those medieval comparisons, look at how much time those medieval peasants got and the modern American worker doesn't. Now, what this is, is for mandated leave. Now, mandated leave sounds like a really good thing initially, but what it is, is it's a government mandate and they never end well. For a corporation to be competitive, to maybe go to a 30-hour work week might be something that they need to compete with in the future. But then let the market dictate that. Let the labor hours dictate that. Let the needs of the enterprise dictate that. Do not let Bernie Sanders dictate that. And don't let him do it with faulty and incorrect historical backing. But let's pivot to a, I don't know, maybe even a bigger question. In a piece for the Atlantic by Joe Pinskert entitled, How Much Leisure Time Do the Happiest People Have?, he notes, a new study from UCLA surveyed 35,000 Americans and found that employed people's ratings of their satisfaction with life peaked when they had in a neighborhood of two and a half hours of free time a day. If you have more free time on your hands, your happiness is likely to go down. The study noted a negative quadratic relationship between discretionary time and life satisfaction. These results show that while having too little time is indeed linked to lower levels of life satisfaction, of course, working 12-hour days would do that. But having more time does not continually translate to greater life satisfaction and can even reduce it. Now, commenting on this finding for Inc. magazine, Jessica Stillman states, the gap between how much free time we say we have and how much we really have is striking, as is the chasm between our sense of being time poor and the research showing we actually have the leisure time we need to live our best lives. So why do we feel slammed even when we're not? What explains these disparities? Time use experts offer a couple of theories. Author Laura Vanderkam, for instance, suggests the problem is often we're not thinking enough about our free time. Making more active and intentional use of our hours would make them count for more. If you fritter away your free time mindlessly scrolling Facebook, in other words, it's not a huge shock that you're not going to end up wishing you had more time of leisure. And note that men have higher leisure time than women. U.S. men spend an average of 49.2 daily minutes playing video games and using computers for leisure, up from 36 minutes per day in the corresponding period of 2019. Now, part of that would be due to COVID, of course. Women spend an average of just 26 minutes daily on gaming and leisure computer use. And does this time create a sense of well-being and happiness that is ostensibly, but not really, Sanders' goal? One Oxford study cites positive aspects of video game playing, a study touted by several huge and influential video game companies, of course, but this was based on one Nintendo game and a very tiny sample. On the contrary, a National Institutes of Health study found, our findings indicate that there is an association between daily exposure to violent video games and a number of depressive symptoms among pre-adolescent youth. When studies conflict, it is time to lean on something lacking in much discourse today, and that is common sense. That tells us too much of a good thing may be harmful. If your free time involves standing on the sidelines of an 11-year-old baseball game and conflating your child's success with your own self-worth, that is also a harmful use of time and is liable to create even more stress and stress sense of lost time. Stillman adds, the exact mix of reasons for feeling time poor probably vary by the person, and a few of us are actually time poor, though statistically speaking it's unlikely you're one of them. But the central takeaway of all this science and expert advice remains constant. You probably have all the time you need to be happy. It's your mindset, and your behavior that needs an adjustment more than your schedule. We in 21st century America, unlike those medieval peasants, have been given a gift. We have been given almost as much time for leisure pursuits as we do in the workplace. It is a gift, but it is within our own agency whether we choose to squander it. And I would reject the thought that what we really need is so much more of it. This is Bell Avis. As always, really thanks for listening. Check out all of our other podcasts. We are on all of the major directories. And again, really appreciate your listening.